0: Welcome from me John Strickland to Our Future Skies in partnership with AIG. In this podcast series I'm talking with a number of leading players from different parts of the airline industry exploring their views on what kind of shape it might be in and how it might look over the next 10 to 20 years. Hopefully the worst of the COVID pandemic, which is certainly the industry's biggest ever crisis, is now behind us. But we're only in the early stages of recovery. And at the same time, there are a raft of other challenges. We're witnessing mounting political tension and conflict risk in many parts of the world, including war in Ukraine, increasing uncertainty about the future of globalization. Is it stalling or even going into reverse? And a growing sense of urgency on the subject of climate change. All three of these dynamics profoundly impact aviation. So in this episode, we're going to hear the airport perspective and specifically from Dubai Airports, one of the world's leading airport groups on how the airline business will be affected by these and future challenges. So with this in mind, I'd like to introduce my guest today, Paul Griffiths, CEO of Dubai Airports. Now, Paul is a relatively rare executive in the industry and as much as he's worked at senior level, both for airlines and airports, and in several parts of the world and that certainly provides him with not only immense experience but with a much broader perspective to reflect on the future so welcome paul thank you
1: very much john glad to be here
0: good to have you well i was reflecting back knowing we're doing this uh, podcast paul but we've known each other about 30 years which is uh, perhaps a horrific thought in that uh, span of time and i think even the first time that we met we were effectively looking into the future. We were discussing some software that you were producing at the time, allowing airlines to better shape their future capacity and pricing. And I guess I guess that future gazing has never stopped. I think that's
1: absolutely right, John. I, I hate to say this, it's probably longer than 30 years, but we won't dwell on that at all. But yes, the world has changed hugely in that time, that's for sure.
0: Absolutely, and let's get to you know your your uh, current stomping ground, where you've been for fifteen years, which is as as CEO of uh, Dubai Airports. Well, we started with one airport in Dubai. Of course, there are two today, but that original airport was actually built in 1960. It wasn't really till the 1980s it started to get itself known on the aviation map at that time. Possibly some listeners will remember they stopped at Dubai in the middle of the night on a fuel stop between Europe and Asia, but it was only really from the middle of the 1980s with the birth of the Emirates that it really started its own growth trajectory into the massive mega hub we see today. So, Paul, what's what's your take on how Dubai has evolved over that period, indeed, over the, over the 15 years that you've been there? Well, it's interesting,
1: John, because I think it's taken several forms over the year. Obviously, there was a a time when Dubai was literally, as you say, a refuelling stop in the middle of the night. You know, lots of airlines between Europe and Asia used to stop. And actually, I remember a time when people thought the Middle East would fade off the map when the seven four seven four hundred was uh, taking to the skies and could avoid that interim stop. But it's really interesting how the region has metamorphosized and its airports have changed over that time and actually have evolved uh, as geocentric hubs. And I think it really started to happen in the early 2000s when the role of, of the Middle Eastern hubs really started to emerge as a, as a really good uh, place to actually found a hub-and-spoke airline. But the most interesting thing of all, I think, is how the city and the airport and the aviation infrastructure has involved hand-in-hand, because if you think about it, uh, growing a city around an airport aviation hub seems quite an obvious thing now, but it was certainly innovative in the 2000s when Dubai really started to, took, to take off. And actually, what's been the most surprising thing is the city has grown in um, hand in hand with the growth of the airport. Mm-hmm. So the transfer traffic and the point-to-point traffic have broadly been most of the time, which is, I suppose, the greatest surprise. So I think over the last 15 years, we've seen Dubai evolve from a 30 million airport to a 90 million airport. And uh, having presided over the growth substantially on the same site and the tripling of the traffic, I don't think there's been another opportunity in the entire sector that's been quite as fast moving action packed and also had to uh, play host to some pretty innovative steps to make that happen.
0: Well, I think you've set the scene very nicely there, some uh, big themes, not least the, uh, the hand-in-hand approach of Dubai, and it's something I want to return to uh, in our discussion as we go along today. If we just reflect also more broadly on the airport business model, it's something I'm wondering if we're going to see some significant change in that in the years ahead, because putting it uh, simply for many listeners who are maybe not so close to the sector, historically, airports charged landing and passenger fees to airlines, and they topped those up with what are known as non airport aeronautical revenues, revenues from such sources as duty-free restaurants and retail. And obviously, Dubai is a great example of that. Some airports, indeed, these non-aeronautical streams of revenue have become a majority. But do you think airports as a business will change in the years ahead in terms of dynamics of revenue generation? I think
1: definitely. I'm quite ashamed, actually, at how the airport sector has really struggled with legacy for so long. And I do think that uh, one of the things that I came into the business of running airports for was because I was a customer before. Um, I was an airline customer and quite, I think in tandem with a lot of airlines, quite dissatisfied at the attitude that um, airports uh, had to airlines. And I think that they saw airlines as suppliers of their customers and actually, I'm sure most airline executives would violently disagree with that, as I did at the time, because it's the airlines that invest huge sums of money attracting passengers to book on their aircraft. And therefore, I've always seen airports as a critical part of that supply chain. And the difficulty is that unless you act with a little bit of humility as a critical part of that supply chain. You can't actually do what most airlines want you to do, and that is provide excellent front-end customer service at a price which is reasonable. And I think a lot of the punch-ups that exist between airports and airlines are because charges are too high. Airports are not responsive to customer needs and don't really reflect what most airlines are looking for. And that's a seamless, quick, efficient journey to make absolutely sure the product provided on the ground matches what airlines are trying to provide in the air. So I think we've had a slightly different view. And certainly, as you mentioned, aeronautical charges, we're in the bottom quartile of all comparator airports in terms of our aeronautical charges. And I think a typical wide bodied aircraft landing in Dubai pays probably about one-tenth of what they pay in some comparable international airports because of course our government charges and our aeronautical charges are so much more cost effective so I think definitely in the future the most successful airports and airline partnerships will have to be based on a common understanding of serving the customer much better than using a lot of the legacy processes that uh, we're inflicting on customers at this point in time
0: well let's just go a little deeper on a, a couple of those those points paul on the one hand at the, the revenue side and i remember one of the first times ever going through dubai airport seeing the, the glittering duty free shop and buying my uh, Uh, probably Sony Walkman and cassettes and stuff in in the 80s and one of those first times passing through. So those retail revenues have been very important, but people, of course, don't want to spend time in airports any longer than they have to. Uh, So uh, getting them to extract their wallets is perhaps already uh, a challenge. Technology, again, has changed, uh, expedited by COVID, and people are used to online shopping. Do do you think uh, also the dynamic in that uh, taking revenue uh from customers by airlines and airports is going to change because if it doesn't both parties are going to be lost to to online shopping for example
1: well i think the thing is the role of uh, retail at airports i think has to change anyway i mean if you think about how ineffective the whole supply chain and logistics of providing in-flight shopping aloft i mean one 80-cent can of Coke, I think, costs about uh, $200 a year in fuel if you fly it every day between Dubai and London, for example. And I think the logistics of online retail have got to uh, come into this industry at some stage. The other thing, of course, is the idea of carrying aloft uh, bottles of flammable liquid on an aeroplane. I don't think you'd get a safety case if you tried to make that one in this day and age, so I really do think the best of what has been achieved in online retail needs to apply to the travel sector. And if we could actually say that the time to shop is on board, the time to view is at the airport, and the time to deliver can be at any point of the customer's choosing, surely that's a much more effective and convenient way to present you know uh, goods to the customer. So, I, I'm a great advocate for joining all the disparate parts together and actually rethinking the whole role of of retail, both on the ground and in the air. And I think, you know, it is important that the experience at the airport progresses. And I think most people will want to use their time at the airport, maybe just to relax between flights if they're connecting, or to, you know, spend their time looking at the various options and services we provide you know maybe have a massage going to the lounges you know play a bit of football in the airports or watch a f- film or a movie you know there's all sorts of options i think where we could encourage people to spend time in a much better way that would suit them but i think you know you, you're right john in what you said most of um our customers rate our product more highly the less time they spend interfacing with it so it is about speed and efficiency and getting people through the airports in the in the shortest time possible i think that's what people value most of all their time
0: and that broader relationship you described paul about uh, airport charges with dubai being very much down there in the uh, the lower quartile it it seems to me it's always been an uneasy relationship between airlines and airports. It's a case of can't live with, can't live without, a kind of dependency. Uh, and we do, if we look beyond Dubai, which perhaps breaks the mold, see enormous disputes uh, between airlines and airports about the subject of costs. And do you think we'll see an evolution in this relationship uh, happening also partly because we're seeing airline business models changing? You know, will hub carriers be what they are today uh, Dubai is driven by the hub activity of Emirates or other models such as long-haul low-cost ultra long-haul how is that going to shape the dynamic of this relationship and airports need to invest in the right future infrastructure
1: I think the problem is it's about an efficiency and it's also about the monopoly status of a lot of airports I mean for a start, we are 24-7 airport on a very, very modest site. So the throughput we get through DXB is absolutely enormous. I mean, we're greatly helped by the fact that most of the flying is clearly on ultra-wide-bodied um, aircraft that with very long-haul journeys. So we are helped in the average passengers per movement is probably at least 50 to 60 more than an average airport on the globe. So we have that efficiency. And the 24-7 element, of course, is very important, because if you are seeking to amortize the investment in infrastructure over a set of facilities such as terminals and runways that are only being used for, you know, two thirds of the day, then that's a very different financial proposition from a 24-7 airport such as DXB. So, Because of those factors, I think we can keep our aeronautical charges extremely low and we don't have the fairly heinous taxation that exists in other parts of the world. And frankly, I was quite appalled to see the APD revisions in the UK and the sort of um, soft targets that aviation is becoming for governments around the world. And, you know, this is going to, I think... um, really dent the prospects of the future of aviation in the UK because the government persists in layering on greater levels of taxation and um, competing with other parts of the world. That's clearly not going to be a competitive factor in the future of the industry. So I think that it's down to airports to be able to achieve incredible cost effectiveness in their investment strategy. And also to make sure that governments see aviation as a driver of growth, not a soft target for taxation. So I think, fortunately, we've got those two things very well understood. And of course, the multiplication effect of a customer coming into a country through its airport is so huge on the general economy that why should airports and airlines be seen as a pariah rather than an enabler of economic growth? To me, that's that's um, looking through the telescope the wrong end, if you take that view.
0: And just reflecting back on what you said there, Paul, for any listeners who don't know, APD is Air Passenger Duty, and you are talking there about the uh, government charges we see around the world. Just in terms of the uh, new aircraft types coming out, along with new business models, uh, as we are talking today, All the enthusiastic talk is about new, small, long distance aircraft, Airbus A321, XLRs, these were planes that were doing short haul flights in the past and are evolving rapidly and will be in service in the next few years to do long haul flights, but of course offering many less seats, theoretically offering many more direct routes against the super large aircraft, which uh, Dubai uh, sees more than any other airport in the world, the Airbus A380 in particular, uh, which will start to wane, we would expect during the 2030s. And as Tim Clark from Emirates has pointed out, there is no replacement aircraft of that size. How do you see that shaping both Dubai's plans in terms of capacity and, and airports in general planning ahead for, for these changes in structure?
1: Well, it's interesting because to me, the success of technology is measured in the economic reality of what it costs to operate a plane per seat. And I think, you know, when we've looked at speed versus economy over the years, the economy argument has always won because this is a very competitive industry. And if an airline can demonstrate lower seat mile costs than its competitors, it can clearly compete more effectively. And unlike when the Boeing 707 was replaced in 1969 by the Boeing 747, where we saw a massive leap, not just in capacity, but a massive reduction in the seat mile costs offered to passengers, that really fueled the growth of aviation. because. People could, on ordinary salaries, suddenly afford to go on holidays that they could only dream about before, holidays that were just the preserve of the rich and famous, and that was enabled by the superior economics of the larger aircraft. What's happened, I think, in recent years is the use of new engines and uh, alternative methods of construction, carbon composites replacing Aluminium as a, a majority use of components in aircraft manufacture, what you've actually seen now is for the first time a complete break from the linearity of scale and operating economics. So the larger the aircraft doesn't now mean that the seat mile economics are better. So the Airbus A350 and the Boeing 787, for example are achieving better seat mile economics per seat than some of the larger aircraft. And what this actually means is a bit of a revolution. And I think think it was Alan Joyce from Qantas who was uh, very well reported saying he'd rather fly two 787s than a larger aeroplane because the commercial risk is lower and actually the operating economics are are lower. So I think we're living in an age where that Paradigm and that assumption has been changed forever. And I think that will change the face of the industry. What it also means is that with the efficiencies of modern engines and aerodynamics, the XLR aircraft are now achieving the sort of range and missions that was the preserve of the larger wide bodied aircraft. And so We've got smaller aircraft capable of long-range um, operations now, and that's opening up all sorts of new route possibilities that didn't exist before. So I think, you know, the the preserve of the congested airports will always lie in the wide-body, high-capacity aircraft, because, of course, aircraft development is going to become more and more difficult, and aircraft slots at major airports, there's not going to be many more of those created. So. I think you've got a bit of a dichotomy here. And I think what will happen over time is that regional airports will come into their own if we can't continue to expand our hub airports in some parts of the world. And you'll see many more long-haul services from smaller airports using smaller aircraft. And what that's calling for is a revolution in uh, ground mobility. You know, we've got to get those regional airports better connected into the big centres of population, so that capacity can be unlocked. I think in lots of parts of the developed world, the number of airports is not the problem, it's the financial viability of them. And a revolution in ground transportation, together with the revolution of the economics and range capability of smaller aircraft, will drive that revolution. So I think in 10, 20 years time, a lot of the uh, market for air travel will have changed beyond all recognition from what we see today.
0: Thanks, Paul. I'll come back to that point about ground access uh, in a little while. Just let's reflect uh, before leaving the specifics of this theme, the the whole dynamics of demand. I mean, one thing COVID taught us is the industry has been stood on its head. The type of demand we have has shifted much more towards VFR, visiting friends and relations and leisure. There are questions about the volume of business travel coming back for the future, whether people's habits in travel will change and start mixing business and leisure more on a regular basis. What's your take on how we might see uh, the dynamics of people's travel changing in the years ahead, Paul?
1: Well, the first thing I would say is let's not draw any long conclusions from the behaviour we're seeing today. We are in a bit of a bubble at the moment. We've kept 3.9 billion people across the world. That's half of the world's population in some form of lockdown um, at various times over the last couple of years. And as you know, the way to create insatiable demand for something is to create a shortage. I mean, certain brand of crisps at the moment have been made incredibly short for um, by an IT glitch. And everyone is clamoring for this particular brand. So whether it's brilliant marketing or a genuine problem remains to be seen. But it's the nature of humanity that if you create a shortage, the desire to own a product goes up and up. And I think the clamouring for air travel reflects that shortage that we've had over the last couple of years. That's also exacerbated greatly by the problems with supply, not just aircraft getting back into the air from the ground, but also the fact that a lot of pilots and cabin crew have left the industry and the requirement for engineering attention to get aircraft recertified for service again runs into thousands of hours per aircraft. So. There are a lot of supply issues facing many sectors, not least the aviation industry, specifically the airlines. So I think we're in a little bit of a bubble at the moment where supply has been constrained and demand has been exacerbated by the shortages. So I rather think in the longer term, the balance between supply and demand will return to something that we regard to be slightly normal. And I think if you go back over time, lots of the predictions of what technology would do to change our lives have proved to be completely wrong. Um, I'm sure you remember all of the uh, cries that we would never have to insulate our homes for heat loss or heat gain because nuclear power would be providing all of our energy in the future and it would be boundless and cheap. Um, That hasn't quite gone so well. Uh, And then, of course, the invention of faxes and email and everything and computer power would mean that we could do all of our work in two days and then take five days off every week. That hasn't quite worked out (laughs) as intended. And I think, unfortunately, that the uh, idea of video conferencing Hmm. replacing travel is likely to go in exactly the same direction. You know, these predictions have always been universally wrong, in my view. And I think what happens is technology just intensifies the pace of life. And what's possible is to get more done in far less time. So as far as business travel is concerned, I think what we've discovered with video conferencing, it's very easy to make contact and it's very easy to keep up a relationship. But you can't conduct a detailed negotiation or read body language or feel how your presentation is going down in a room full of people you can't do any of that on a flat screen so i think people are really understanding that maybe we will travel less per deal but there will be more deals facilitated by video conferencing enhancing our ability to get in touch with each other so I, I think that business travel will be just as prevalent as before. And in fact, what we've observed so far is business travel has bounced back incredibly strongly. And um I don't think it's going to go back down. I think there will be more leisure travel because people following the pandemic will not see travel as a discretionary expenditure. It will be baked into their annual budget, just like um a lot of other things that we regard as staples now. So I don't think the relationship will fundamentally change in terms of lowering demand. You may see different types of demand, but my own view is the demand for mobility, personal mobility, will continue to increase in all its various forms, including air travel.
0: Very interesting perspectives, Paul. It made me think a, a colleague of mine said to me, you know, video conferencing is fine while you're talking with people who, who you know, who are already part of your network. But when it comes to establishing new relationships with people you don't know, uh, it's exactly as you said, you can't do that other than face-to-face. So uh, I think we're going to see some uh, interesting changes uh, over time. Let's turn to the dynamics of the region in which you work, Paul. We've given a little bit of a, a backdrop to uh, Dubai's development and airport. Dubai is certainly very much a preeminent airport in the region. We see other hub airports, including Abu Dhabi and Doha. Do you think Dubai is likely to stay preeminent given its size and scale?
1: I think most definitely, yes.
0: But that doesn't
1: mean that we can be complacent. I mean, we've seen the tremendous developments in airport capacity that have gone on around the region, notably in Istanbul and Hamad in Doha. And um, I think, obviously, those are developing as very significant hub airports in their own right. Uh, We can't also ignore the ambitions in Saudi, where they've just announced an airport in Riyadh to rival some of the plans that we've got in Dubai. So, you know, this is never an industry where one can rest on one's laurels. There's always something new happening and some new competitor waiting in the wings. So our approach, I think, is that we've got to do two things, continue to provide the capacity for expansion, but most definitely work on the quality of the uh, offering on the ground. I mean, we've got some very high quality airlines at DXB, And my mission is to make absolutely sure none of those customers that travel on those airlines are the slightest bit disappointed when they go through DXB. They've got a right to expect the same high level of quality on the ground that they experience in the air. So I think it's about quality and quantity going forward.
0: And you touched there, Paul, on on Saudi Arabia, which I think is is fascinating. The country, of course, has an overall uh, ambition to move away from reliance on oil in the economy. And that naturally includes development of uh, service industries, and in particular, tourism, if I'm not mistaken, they want to move air travel from around about 100 million to 300 million passengers a year. And as you said, building new airports, even setting up a new airline, and it's a different market from others in the Gulf by virtue of having a large population and a young, very tech savvy population. Um, Do you think that's going to be really a a fundamental shift in terms of that uh, Saudi developing those ambitions?
1: Well, it's interesting because I think one thinks that you know is is Saudi competing for the market that Dubai's established, and I I don't think that's the case because I you you could suggest that London should be worried that Paris is competing. You mm-hmm. should be worried if you live in Boston that you are never going to get enough travelers to visit the city because they're always going to New York. I, I don't subscribe to that view. My view is actually that what's happening in the world is that people, when they travel, they want to see more than just one thing. They want to visit multiple places. If you look at the development of travel and tourism from Japan to Europe or from the United States to Europe, just to take one example, people don't just go to Paris. They'll go to Paris and London and Rome and Frankfurt and Madrid. Um, They all do in the course of a a 14-day tour of several cities. Uh, people don't want to stay in one place. They want to make the most of their leisure time. So I think the same will apply to the Middle East. People don't want to just come and visit Dubai. And if there are options to go to Bahrain and Doha and, uh, and Saudi and see some of the amazing things that there uh, exist in Saudi, and then perhaps go on to Oman or places around the region actually that's good for tourism for the region as a whole and I think that um, it it will boost travel and tourism for the whole region and I don't think that we will be in a competitive situation I think the more the merrier quite honestly.
0: I think you're right it's certainly a A very unexplored uh, country for, for many, and I think that is going to come out in the years ahead. You touched uh, a couple of times on technology, Paul, and if we look at uh, what I would call disruptive technology, COVID certainly forced a pace, and Dubai uh, took a lead in using technology to help people get through the airport when we were going through all these challenges of... Uh, Uh, of COVID testing and documentation and so on and of course we're using technology in many many new ways in running the business and the bits we don't like such as security and immigration but also in terms of the customer relationship Uh, what what are your thoughts on this Paul I've always seen you as a bit of a a technology leader I guess that uh, is something you occupy a lot of your time in thinking about.
1: Well, most definitely. And I've always believed that although technology is fascinating from a sort of scientific perspective, where it actually makes the biggest impact is when it actually changes the lives of the customers it's seeking to influence. I mean, you know, we all used to have to wave down taxes in the rain and try and attract someone's attention. And, and it used to cost us a lot of time and money. But now, of course, uh, a technological network in the background is sequencing all of those individual taxi journeys in within our phones and calling a taxi to where we are within minutes. So it's the technology that changes lives that most interests me. And I think for far too long in the airport and airline space, we've relied on a lot of disaggregated uh, completely separate legacy technologies i mean if you look at airline reservation systems the roots of those go back to the 1950s you know and the basic coding that they use hasn't really changed we have got different front ends now but the fact that we do not have a proper holistic system that allows you to book and check in and deal with your luggage and make all your onward connections that happens seamlessly in the background and deals with your health and immigration security requirements in this day and age is pretty far behind the curve, in my opinion. I I think all of the processes that we subject people at an airport to is, is really driving in the wrong direction. We're doing it for the convenience of the technology and the operation, not for the convenience of the customer. And now by turning it on its head and getting all of our customers to arrive, calmly at the airport with all of those things taken care of, and any residual things like security and immigration, just dealt with with a single transaction seamlessly without the customer even being aware of it. I think we've got the possibility to do that today. We just need the aggregation and integration to take place. And the problem is, the industry is comprised of a A lot of different interested parties, not of whom are all joined together in the same ecosystem. And then when we get to governments and trying to agree standards across governments, we've seen during COVID the abject failure of governments to agree a common standard for travel. So uh, unfortunately, the barriers are not technical, they're human to get people to cooperate to the level that we need in order to be able to introduce new technology as a common platform across the entire travel globe really and we saw this when carbon-based tickets disappeared overnight and um, you know check-in agents could say goodbye to having to scrub the red ink off their fingers every night (laughs) and the reason we were able to banish ticketing was because the entire travel settlement system was owned by a single entity And they were able to introduce that uh, technology without too much drama. Unfortunately, a lot of the residual problems, such as immigration, are not within the preserve of a single entity. They're owned by individual governments, all of whom have different requirements. So unless we can find a seamless and common interface to join them all together, that is going to be the challenge, I think, that sits between... Uh, where we are today and where that ultimate completely non-stop seamless effortless travel experience lies.
0: And Paul if we can uh, overcome those political challenges and get to that nirvana of using technology to the benefit of a customer what does that mean for uh, jobs in the industry and the role of people are we going to become completely automated I'm thinking my own experience going through an airport and I'm sure it's similar for you and many people. I don't want to stand in queues for check-in, for security, the things that stress you, that take time. But I do want people to be there to uh, smile at me, to welcome me into a lounge, to, to board a plane. And certainly if there's some disruption, I'd rather speak to a, a knowledgeable person than try to work it all out myself under pressure of time on a small uh, iPhone screen. What is gonna be the role of people in the future industry?
1: Well, I'm glad you said that, John, because that's exactly my view, that what we should mm-hmm. use the technology to do is to remove all the cues, remove all the mindless, repetitive, administrative tasks that we force our customers through. And that means that two things can happen. First of all, we can increase the flow rate of people through the airport. And if you increase the flow rate, Without building a single square meter of new infrastructure, you've actually increased the capacity, which is a huge benefit. And secondly, you've freed up people for that very, very crucial human interaction, and that is between staff and the customer. Because really, we are in the hospitality business, or we should be in the hospitality business. We should be welcoming people. We should be speeding them on their journey. We should ask them if they've got any questions or any particular special needs that they may have. And as you say, those are far better dealt with by a human than a, a, an interface with a machine. And also, if you take out all of the process, you have the opportunity to reflect the values of the brand of the airport and airline through the people, and that's the most powerful thing. You don't want to get to a, an airline lounge in which an airline has invested, you know, millions of, of dollars, creating a fantastic uh, environment, and have to go through a sort of metro-type gate to get in. You really want to, to be greeting by greeted by someone who's smiling at you and say welcome Mr. Strickland, welcome to the lounge, enjoy your time. Is there anything that you would like to do while you're here? Let me give you a brief overview of what's available if you are a first-time visitor. All those things are far more pleasantly delivered by a smiling, customer-friendly individual than by any form of technology. I mean, look what an abject failure. Those holograms to give repetitive uh, reminders to people were. They, they lasted only five minutes. They're all gathering dust.
0: Good point. Paul, let's move on to uh, the most serious topic, uh, that of the, the uh, environment and sustainability. And it's certainly the, the the subject where the industry is firmly in the dock. Of course, airlines are the biggest challenge. They produce the emissions from the jet engines, Of airports contribute, but nothing of the same magnitude. But if we look ahead, uh, the wisdom is that uh, new technology in terms of engines, be it battery, electric power, or hydrogen, Uh, will come, but we're talking many decades into the future Neither you or I are likely to be around to see those sadly in uh, wide use. All the hopes are resting on replacing kerosene fuel with SAFs, sustainable aviation fuels. So what do you see as uh, the developments in this area and the role of airports? Because uh, for one thing, airports are going to have to provide supplies of this fuel and and do their own work in terms of uh, cutting emissions.
1: It's a very, very difficult topic indeed. I think the problem is that we have existed for you know, the last 100 years plus on what has been the most calorifically efficient form of fuel. The calorific density per kilogram of a, of a litre of jet A1 is just not rivaled by any other form of alternative energy. And the difficulty is it's cheap to produce it can be converted into energy to drive aircraft into the sky very effectively and we are really struggling to come up with an alternative and i think as you correctly suggested john this lies in two areas of research the one is the long-term research which is an alternative clean source of fuel for aviation whether that be a more Uh, efficient form of electric power. It might be even micronuclear generation, it may be hydrogen, it may be some completely new source of propulsion. But as you say, that's got to be some form of long term developments that I think we can't uh, even imagine today. The difficulty is getting from here to there is going to be very difficult in this very hard to abate sector. Clearly, batteries that weigh the same and and very significant amounts of weight whether they're charged or not are a big problem for aviation I can't see that being the source for large aeroplanes hydrogen is difficult and actually quite energy intensive to produce it's very difficult to store it has to be cryogenically frozen to be compressed to the right density to be able to be carried so that has a huge amount of difficulty. And the idea that sustainable aviation fuel will be available in significant quantity and at a cost that isn't too much of a premium over Jet A1 uh, remains a very distant solution. I mean, the difficulty at the moment, even with the proposed increases in production of SAF, there isn't going to be enough SAF just to fuel the increase in aviation demand over the next um, few years, yet alone be able to make a dent in the supply of conventional jet A1. And of course, the cost of production is much higher than jet A1 itself. So I think this is where governments and the private sector and public sector all have to move hand in hand and say there has to be some form of mandate for the introduction of a gradual blend of sustainable aviation fuel into the Jet A1 mix at airports over time. But at the same time, there has to be some concentrated effort to increase the production rate of sustainable aviation fuel. Unfortunately, it requires a lot of water and arable land, but there could be enough feedstock to enable SAF to be a drop-in replacement for Jet A1. Most aircraft are certified for up to 50% blend between conventional JET-A1 and SAF. The difficulty, of course, is that it is particularly location-specific as to where SAF can be grown and and distilled. And then if you start to transport it around the world, it becomes a problem. So my own view is that we are going to have to raise a levy on JET-A1 to be able to pay for the investment in SAF to equalize the price differential between the two and to encourage its volume production if we've got a hope of replacing Jet A1 as the fuel of choice with something that's more sustainable. But it's a very, very hard challenge and I think a lot of countries need to focus on what will decarbonize all of the uh, climate issues that they've got within their territory in the most effective an impactful way and maybe what we have to do is reserve the production of SAF exclusively for air travel because it's such a hard to abate sector it's a complex subject it doesn't mm-hmm. have an obvious answer and a lot of the technology that we've discussed about the suitable alternatives they have huge technological environmental and other problems to resolve
0: Paul, you mentioned earlier about the uh, potential rising role for regional airports if they were better connected by surface transport. And we've certainly heard about technological developments such as the hyperloop between Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Do you think that might uh, develop more widely and possibly replace some air travel in the future?
1: I think the thing is that people get a bit confused when they think about modes of transport. What we are actually trying to achieve is to create the most effective way of getting an individual from an individual location to another individual location based at a varying distance could be 10 miles could be 100 miles could be several thousand miles and the problem with mass transport it seeks to aggregate everyone together into a single place whether it's an airport or a railway station in order to make the means of transportation effective and just as we discussed with the way that air travel itself is going to smaller units of capacity which are becoming more efficient i wonder whether the future actually lies in more cost effective and efficient ways of you know door-to-door transport rather than Efficient ways of creating more mass transport. You know, I've I've often wondered, a bit like airports, if you have a situation where we spend billions of dollars around the world creating new roads, and yet if you look at the demand profile for the ro- those roads, they are very peaky. You know, you've got the two uh, very significant peaks of travel when people go from office to home in the morning and evening. And then outside of those peaks, you know, particularly during the night period, those are not used at all. And that's because we as humans, we need to sleep. So we don't travel when we need to sleep. However, if you could travel when you need to sleep and you were able to summon to your door a driverless vehicle with a very comfortable bed in the back with everything you might need, a TV, drinks cabinet, whatever is your particular desire on a a journey. And you could just climb in the back and then wake up the next morning at your destination several hundred miles away. Um, I wonder whether that's the way things might be going. That opens up all sorts of possibility for, you know, demand-based pricing. And if we could use the roads effectively at night, we might take some demand off the roads during the day. And the reason I say this is because instead of heading to major airports in often hard to reach and congested city centres, if we could use that degree of personal mobility to connect with the latent capacity and regional airports, you know, why if I'm due in Brussels and I'm going from London, say, and I've got a meeting at 6am, rather than having to get up at you know, four o'clock in the morning and drive to uh, a congested city airport? Why can't I get in a car and go some distance to a rural airport and then get on an aeroplane that will take me for my meeting fresh in the morning? And that might be a way of using that sleep time more productively to get around and actually decrease the demand on those pinch points that we all have to use at the exact same time it would make, I think, a huge um, leaps in efficiency of the usage of the entire transport system. And we'd be able to create huge improvements in capacity without having to you know, build more runways or create more roads or build more railways. So that in conjunction with mass travel, I think will again change the face of um, what we experience in travel today.
0: And Paul, as we draw our, our conversation today to a close, I just want to reflect on some of the broader potential political economic risks and, and shocks we might face and linking that to what we've just been talking about with the environment. You, you've been very clear that uh, in Dubai, uh, aviation is very much part of the economy. Uh, the airlines, the airports work as part of Dubai's very functioning uh, as a as a state, as a country. Do you think we are likely to see more polarisation of treatment of aviation in the future? Certainly here in Europe, we see both French and Dutch governments doing things which maybe restrict aviation, yet it's a complete opposite to the integrated approach of Dubai. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because the unfortunate
1: uh, thing is you're getting the collision between politics and economic growth. And I'm reminded I had a very treasured, audience with Lee Kuan Yew when he was Prime Minister of Singapore many years ago, and he was asked a question about what he felt about the taxation of airlines as a means to drive um, public income. And he said that he was all for the taxation of airlines because he felt that um, the more that other governments taxed their airlines, the more competitive the Singapore aerospace industry would become. And I felt that was a very enlightened attitude. And I think that's certainly been the case in Dubai. The economic enablers of the air transportation sector are very, very well understood as drivers of economic growth. And I think in lots of parts of the world, the future of aviation belongs to those governments and aviation sectors that see each other as a complementary force rather than at opposed ends of the spectrum. And I fear that, uh, particularly in Europe, things are going in the other way because the politics of the situation are being used and abused to the detriment of the industry, which is a great shame.
0: And the overall political outlook and the world landscape, poor, we see a tendency in some countries to a more nationalistic uh, outlook. We obviously have the, uh, the demographics of the rise, of Asia, uh, many military conflicts and sensitivities around us, even as we speak, and yet there are uh, shoots of optimism. In the region, again, we've seen the, the opening up of relationships between, for example, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Israel. Flights being launched between Israel and and Dubai, for example, which perhaps one wouldn't have imagined even two or three years ago. But what What is your take on these kind of uh, political changes and trends? Are you optimistic?
1: If I might just take you on a little journey, John, 200 years ago, someone had the bright idea of putting 571 people together in a group on a Sunday and taking them on a short 12-mile journey within the UK. They provided meals, they provided music using a brass band, and the idea of this very first organised tour was that people on their day off wanted a diversion, they wanted some enlightenment, and so therefore the very first package tour was driven by a young entrepreneur who wanted people to see travel and tourism as a force for good. I don't think that's changed in the last 200 years, and I think if you look at the good and that the, and the social development of the world that, that has been enabled by travel and tourism, I think that is the thing that I'd like people to take out the most from what the industry has done for the world. And I think the more we travel, the more we get to see people face to face, the more we understand the perspective of others around the world, the easier it will be to try and reduce conflict Create uh, an end to poverty, all sorts of different things can come out of the ability to travel. If we remain nationalistic within closed borders with our own introspective view, then I don't think the world will be as good a place as it will be by the continued enablement that travel and tourism delivers.
0: Well, Paul, I think that's a great point uh, on which to close our discussion for today, and I, I share your sentiments. It's been good to talk to you about the challenges and opportunities we face, Paul, and really draw on your immense experience. So, Paul Griffiths, CEO of Dubai Airports, many thanks for your time. Thank you, John. Thanks to you for listening, and I hope we've provided you with some food for thought on our future skies. I'll be back soon, but for now, from me, John Strickland, goodbye.
1: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast series are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of American International Group Inc or its subsidiaries or affiliates, AIG. Any content provided by our speakers are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion,
0: ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual or anyone or anything. AIG makes no representations as to accuracy,
1: completeness, correctness or validity of any information provided during this podcast series and will not be liable for any errors, omissions or delays in this information
0: or any losses, injuries or damages arising from its use.